Please open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. We have progressed through our study of this epistle, and we now make our way to the sixth chapter. We have had scriptures read to us this morning that address the importance of the local church and the nature of the local church. And as Paul concludes this epistle, beginning with the first verse of chapter 6, he sets forth some of the duties that church members have toward one another, that church members have toward their pastor. And as is typical with his writing, as he gets to the end of an epistle that may have had a major theme controlling most of it, he gives some miscellaneous duties for us. Our brother Stephen just read to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where there's a long list of miscellaneous duties, just two words long, three words, five words, in which Paul concludes by just throwing out a lot of different things that he wishes that we would remember. And it's a Holy Spirit-inspired method of instruction, and it is wonderful, and we should be thankful for it. Galatians chapter 6, you know that until the middle of the fifth chapter, he dealt with one subject, and that was to refute the false teachers that had come out of Jerusalem, teaching his converts that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Beginning in the middle of that fifth chapter, he begins exhorting the Galatians to loving one another and then to walking in the Spirit rather than the flesh. And that concludes the fifth chapter. As we come to chapter 6, he's going to take up some duties of how we actually do love one another. And I hope that you'll be able to see the connection clearly. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the church is not to dot the landscape with buildings. The purpose of the church is not to give an audience for a pastor. The purpose of the church is for us to come together and help one another live a holy and righteous life in order to be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes. It is to provide a safe place to hide from the world. It is a place where we can comfort and strengthen one another to be faithful in the duties that God has given us. It is where we can remind each other to be different from the world and to be faithful unto Him that called us and saved us. And we try to emphasize that purpose for the church. And we never want to forget that purpose. Because it's in that purpose that we find our duties plainly expressed in the New Testament. And here we begin with one in the first verse. I hope that as the words of God are read and explained to you, you have the same attitude and spirit that those in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah had. When they heard the word of the Lord... And they celebrated because they had heard the Word of God read distinctly to them and the sense given. I hope that you have the same spirit of Cornelius who told Peter that we are all assembled here to hear whatever you have from God for us. Because though Galatians chapter 6 may not excite you in the flesh, these are the words of the living God. Let us consider them. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. How do we love one another in a New Testament church? Does it mean we hug each other on Sunday mornings? Does it mean we greet one another? Does it mean we send out birthday cards? Or any other such frivolous ways of loving as the ones I just mentioned in comparison to the one we have before us? This is how you love the brethren. And it's a whole lot of work in comparison to just hugging and sending a birthday card or an anniversary greeting. It's brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. Going back to the purpose of our church, and that is to help us stay in the way of righteousness until Jesus Christ comes, here is one of the duties we have. When we see a brother that's been overtaken in a fault, he's doing something that is contrary to the Word of God. The spiritual members of the church are to go after that brother and restore him back to the way of righteousness, to get him out of the ditch that he's fallen into and back onto the highway of holiness. This is the purpose of the church. This is what we have in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. This is what God wants church members to do. The superficial hugging, the superficial expressions of greeting, and they don't have to be superficial, but without Galatians chapter 6, they are superficial. Hugging and greeting doesn't mean anything. The world does that. Stomping and shouting in some so-called praise service isn't loving one another. It's this work right here. It's when you see an error... You correct that person out of that error. And that is how we keep each other in the way of righteousness until Jesus comes. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to burn up this world. Have you seen the recent document that Brother Matthew added to our website? The top document says, We believe in global warming. (laughs) Amen, brothers and sisters. We believe in global warming. Jesus Christ is coming back to burn this world up. And He's not going to have to deplete the ozone layer to do it. And He's not going to have to reduce the the carbon dioxide or anything else in our atmosphere. He's going to burn this world up. They're all lying to you. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, God promised Noah summer and winter, hot and cold shall never cease from the earth as long as He allows it to remain. Jesus Christ is coming back to burn this world up. Our purpose is to be prepared for Him at His coming, and that's why we have a church to help one another toward that goal. And the way we do that is when we see a brother step out of line, step out of line with God's Word, we correct him. And this one verse tells us how to do it. Brethren, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. First of all, it addresses the spiritual members. Every church has spiritual members and it has carnal members. It is the grief of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's the grief of every one of His sincere ministers that there is ever a carnal member in a church. 
but they're there. They creep in among us. They may be reprobates that are not in the book of life and shall never see life. They may be God's elect that are wasting and squandering God's grace at the moment. By being so self-centered, worldly oriented, and carnally minded that they don't look like Christians. And so that's what we have in a church. And Paul just blows out all the carnally minded ones because they can't do anyone any good, and they don't. In every church, there are members that are able to help and serve in spiritual matters, other members, and there are members that never do that. And so the Apostle says, ye which are spiritual. And there are in churches spiritual men and spiritual women who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who love the Word of God, who have hidden it in their hearts, who have it in their tongues, who can detect error, who are convicted when they see error. It tears them up as much as it does a pastor. And they want to go do something about it. And so the Apostle says, if you see a man overtaken in a fault, you spiritual members, go restore him back to the way of righteousness. Get him back walking in step with the rest of the church on the way to heaven. And it says to do it in a spirit of meekness. This is where love comes in. There is in each of our natures, when we see someone else in a fault, we take pleasure in it. Because if we see someone else in a fault, then it automatically makes us feel better about ourselves. There is a wicked spirit in each one of us that is hateful. Paul said it was in him, and he said it was in Titus. When we see someone else fail, we love to look at them like a loser and consider ourselves a winner. But the Lord says, restore them in a spirit of meekness. That is no arrogance, no pride, no conceit. Because they have, are in a fault and you may not be. You know what the Bible says about this attitude. We are to come looking for their moat after we have taken the beam out of our own eyes. That's the spirit of meekness, knowing that we've got beams and we're dealing with someone else's speck or moat. Doing it with the spirit of meekness, not haughtiness, not condescension in an ungodly way, but loving care for that brother that you are capable of the very same offenses. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We must go, when we're in the work of converting one back into the way of righteousness, by considering ourselves that we are capable of any sin if God were to let us go. If it weren't for the grace of God, each of us are capable of anything. And so we go realizing we could be tempted by that very sin we're correcting someone else from or by another sin. This is the purpose of the church. Here's an inspired apostle writing a letter to a church. And when he concludes with dealing with the number one heresy that he had to correct, he comes to the duties of church members. And we want to lay hold of this duty for our church to be pleasing in the sight of Jesus Christ And that's all that we really care about. For our church to be pleasing in the sight of Jesus Christ, we must have this conscious care for one another. Not to just send greetings, not to smile, shake hands, or hug, but to convert back into the way of righteousness. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, 
considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. This is the work of soul winning. This is the work of soul winning. From the book of Romans to the book of Hebrews, we have Paul's epistles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is our apostle. Paul tells us as Christian churches and Christian saints what is important for our lives. There is not one verse. There is not one verse telling us to save the lost from hell. Not one verse. Not one hint of a verse to save the lost from hell. But there's many verses like this, and it's to save one another from falling into sin and squandering the grace of God. Saving the lost from hell is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has done it by His mighty power, according to the grace of God, and by His death that was set for the purpose of redeeming the elect of God. And that a single one of them is going to be lost. The Apostle Paul never encouraged anyone to try to get a new name written down in glory. It's not in the Bible. It's not there at all. And yet the average Baptist church today has as its goal the so-called Great Commission. But Paul never repeated the Great Commission because Paul fulfilled the Great Commission. He didn't need to repeat it. The Great Commission was given to 11 chosen men that could do things you'll never be able to do. And they did it. And they preached the Gospel worldwide. And God's elect have been called out by second generation preachers ever since. But this is our duty. This is our duty. They can have as their church mission statement, the completion of the Great Commission, will have as our church mission statement, considering one another and provoking one another and exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching so that we can all meet Jesus Christ in the road of righteousness. That will be our mission statement. We'll fulfill Galatians 6.1 while they play around with verses that don't even apply to them. But this is a duty. This is a duty that we have. And so we ought to fulfill it. What a wonderful statement here. Holding your finger at Galatians chapter 6, let's conclude our consideration of this verse by looking at James 5 that has a like statement. This is soul winning. This is saving souls. If you let that soul continue in in his fault, then he loses his fellowship with God. He's not going to be ready when Jesus Christ returns. He's not going to have the blessing of God upon his life. If you let him go that way, his soul's going to die as far as fellowship with God. You can deliver him from that. You can restore him back to a life of fellowship and prosperity with the Lord. Look at how it's worded in James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if there are any neighbors on your street that are on their way to hell, save them at any cost. Have Some of you have heard the expression, save the lost at any cost. But let's look at the verse. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. There is soul saving. There's soul winning. There's saving. And notice who it's applied to. Brethren, if any of you 
do err from the truth. If any of us wander out of the way of truth, wander out of the way of understanding, as Solomon describes it in the book of Proverbs, we are to convert that brother back to the way of righteousness, back to the truth, out of his error, out of his fault, and that's Bible soul winning. That's Bible saving. Saving a soul from death to fellowship with God. From death in this world. See, the Bible uses death in several different ways. And there is a death that we enter into when we're carnally minded. When we're in error. When we're being worldly minded. We're dead toward the Lord. That's why the Apostle wrote the Ephesians in chapter 5 and said, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. That's why Paul told Timothy about widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that she is dead while she liveth. Wait a minute. Paul, how can you be dead while you live? Well, you can be alive physically and dead spiritually, although a widow in a church wouldn't have been dead spiritually either. She'd have been dead as far as fellowship and a pleasing life to God. And so that's what we have right here. What a difference. What a difference. Brethren, we have a job among ourselves to do, and that's to keep each other in the way of righteousness. Now, verse number two, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is real love right here. Real love is not taking a balloon ride with your brethren in the church. Real love is picking up a heavy load and helping them carry it. Bear ye one another's burdens. To bear a burden means you put something heavy on yourself. You lift up something that is heavy. Something that's going to take extra effort for you to carry it. Think about the words. Bear ye one another's burdens. It means to lift. It means to carry. It means to put forth extra effort. It means to go after other brethren and help them do something that is hard in their life. Which means it's going to take some hardness out of your life that you're going to have to apply toward them. This is the law of Christ. I love the way that this verse is written. You know, these false teachers out of Jerusalem were teaching the importance of the law. And so Paul said, do you really want to know the law? The law of Jesus Christ. He's already told us in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, it's the commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But how do you really do that? Verse 1 told us one way you do it. Verse 2, which includes verse 1, but it includes other things as well, is to bear burdens. That is real love. When you help someone with something unpleasant, going out to eat is not brotherly love in this sense. That's brotherly pleasure. That's not burden bearing. That's pleasure eating. Burden bearing is doing something unpleasant to help someone else bear something that is unpleasant in their life. So the Bible tells us, weep with them that weep. The Bible says that we should suffer with those that suffer. And it says to bear one another's burdens right here in this place. You know, it's easy for us to say, when we see someone with a burden, I don't want to get involved in others' business. You know, that's a wicked statement from our hearts. Nowhere is that taught in the Bible. That came from hell. There's only two sources of every sentence that's ever uttered on earth. 
It's either from heaven or it's from hell. There's nothing in between. Because if it differs with what's from heaven, it is from hell. And to say, I don't want to get involved in others' business, we are our brother's keepers. Verse 1 told us that, and the rest of the Bible tells us that. It's Cain, a wicked one, a man under the influence of the devil, that said, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, he was his brother's keeper. And God judged him for that. And we are one another's keepers in this church to keep each other in the way of righteousness. It's very easy for you or for me to say when we see someone in a fault or someone with a burden in their life, he got himself into it. He can get himself out. You like to think that way? And I can think that way in my flesh. God save us from such foolish and wicked thoughts. It's easy to say I have enough of my own problems to worry about. I don't have time for his. But the Bible tells us we better make time for one another's. We're bound as church members to bear each other's burdens on a brother-to-brother basis. I've pointed this out to you before, and I hope that you always stop and think about it when you come to these words in the Bible. Look at that first few words of Galatians 6.2. Bear ye. In our King James Bible, when we have a pronoun that starts with Y, how many is under consideration? Two or more. A plurality. So he's addressing the whole church. Bear ye. Then he says, one another's burdens. That one another combination in our English Bibles is teaching that it's a duty that we each, each in the church, has toward each other member in a church. Which is why I tell you about the, combi- the mathematical terms, combinations and permutations, which indicate how many relationships there are in this church. And there's tens of thousands of them. Because each member has a relationship toward each other member. One, that's you, whoever you are. One, another. Bear ye, the whole church should be doing this, one, another's burden, one-on-one duty toward the rest of the church. Is what Paul's communicating here very clearly. Bear ye one another's burdens. This is the purpose of the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. I love this purpose of the church. Now, I've already quoted this to you, but I want you to see it. I've mentioned this so many times over the last 20 years. But this is why we come to this place. This is why we want to be members in this church. And this is not only a privilege to be part of a church that fulfills these three verses, but we need to make sure that we're doing our part to fulfill these three verses. Some of you Bible quizzers are memorizing Hebrews 10 this month for the quiz that will be taking place this Saturday. I'm going to read verses 23 through 25. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another. There it is again. One another. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Verse 23 tells us why it's important for us to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. By nature we waver. 
we get tired. We get discouraged. We get distracted. We get caught up in the world. We sin and lose fellowship with the Lord. And we waver in the profession of our faith. Every one of you professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and you were baptized in water as a picture of what He did to put away your sins. That was the profession of our faith, that we were going to live our lives holy for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we waver from that from time to time. And in order for us to hold fast the profession of our faith, remember, to hold something fast, does that mean that you run around quickly in circles while you're holding it? Because it says, holding it fast? Or does the word fast there, is it's part of the word fastened? Secure. Holding fast. Holding it securely with us and not moving from the profession of the Gospel. How do we keep ourselves holding fast our profession? By considering one another. In verse 24 of Hebrews 10, considering one another to provoke unto love and to good works. But notice it's one another. Each one of you, each one of you has to consider every other individual in the body and consider them, what can I do to provoke them to love and to good works? How can I help that other individual member of the church to please the Lord Jesus Christ more? This is the ultimate definition of love. How we help one another prepare to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the highest form of love there is. It has nothing to do with a birthday cake. It has nothing to do with hugging your children when they go to bed at night. It has everything to do with, are you teaching them the way of righteousness so that they can meet Jesus Christ and please Him? And we're supposed to do it toward each other. That's why church growth. Hear me carefully. Church growth is not just a blessing. It's a burden. Because you have to bear one another's burdens. And the more there are for you to bear, you know, you need to consider on a wider range. There's more for you to consider than there were a couple of years ago. There's more burdens to bear. Thankfully, there's more to bear those burdens as well. That's the silver lining in the cloud. But as the church grows, it becomes more difficult for you to stop your life, your little life, your selfish thoughts, and think upon others to consider them and to provoke them to love and to good works. And we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As I told you about the church that we visited last weekend, you know, a a supposedly thriving Southern Baptist church. They never get more than 30% of their membership there. Now, how's that? That's that's violating this verse right here. Hebrews 10.25 says you don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because it's so important for us to get together to exhort one another and to consider and to provoke one another. Why? For verse 23. Lest we waver in our profession of faith and we don't live all out for the Lord Jesus Christ and we squander our lives and we meet the Lord and we've squandered what He's given us. Back to Galatians chapter 6. We bear one another's burdens when we convert wayward brothers back to the truth, as verse 1 taught us. We can bear burdens for the weak in spirit, the weak in body, the weak in liberty. We can show mercy toward their liberty. We can pray for them. 
We can take care of them. We can help. We can serve. I appreciate those that bore a burden yesterday. That would have been an enormous financial burden for the woman that we took care of in the way that we did. We can suffer with those that suffer by empathizing with them, sympathizing with them. We can encourage them and comfort them. The Bible says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the way to bear a burden. As this congregation ages, more and more of us shall face death and then pass through the curtain of death. And we want to die in the Lord and we want to die with the whole congregation considering us and loving us right to the very end when we get to leave this church and join the church above. Verse 3. If you don't like verses 1 and 2, the Apostle and the Lord Jesus Christ assume something about you. You're in love with yourself. If you're not willing to do verses 1 and 2, it's because you're in love with yourself. So we have verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Does this verse only apply to those that are nothing? That they shouldn't think they are something? Or does it apply to all men? Because all of us are nothing. And so no man should think that he is something. If you think that you are something special, and let me tell you something, you all do. And so do I. It is the curse of our fallen nature that we love ourselves more than we love others. That is the selfishness that is in our souls and spirits. You all think that you are something. But the Bible tells us you are nothing. And when you think that you are something, here's how bad it is. You've lied to yourself, but worse than that, you've believed your own lie. You have a part of you that tells you you're something special. And you know what's worse is you actually believe it. When the Bible tells us you're nothing. Holding your fingers at Galatians 6, look at Psalm 62. Psalm 62. I love this little expression by David. Psalm 62 and verse 9. There are, you can think up a hundred excuses why you don't love and care for and serve and bear the burdens of others. You can tell them to me all day long and the Lord doesn't care about a single one of them, nor does He care about all of them combined. They are excuses for your selfishness. They're excuses for your comfort zone. You want to protect yourself so that you can have your little life that's all wrapped up and lost in your lying to yourself about how important you are. When the true life of a Christian is a life of giving and serving and burden-bearing for others. And when that's missing, you'd be hard-pressed to prove you're even a child of God. You're a self-deceived, self-righteous, self-loving sinner. There's all kinds of excuses. It's not my personality. I've never had a good example by my parents. It's hard for me to do that. I'm just not good with words. I don't, the Lord doesn't care about any of those or the other 96 that could be added to them. If you love, you will go and do whatever it takes to care for and serve others. 
But if you think you are something when you are nothing, we want to look at Psalm 62 and verse 9. Many verses could be raised. Many verses are in the outline. Here, try this one with me. Psalm 62, 9. Surely, this is a fact. Surely, men of low degree are vanity. And men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. That is a wonderful verse. You know, you look at the low class and you know they're worthless because all you have to do is open your eyes. They're stupid. They're poor. They're idiots. You look at the low class and you know they're worthless. Hold on. You say you're being so mean to the low class. Oh, no. Listen to the rest of it. You look at the upper class and you say, now that is a man. Look at the success he's had. The Lord says, that's a lie. That's a delusion. Because they're all the same. And he says if you take the poor and the rich, the low and the high, and put them together and put them in a scale and put vanity, which is nothing on the other side, guess what goes down? Vanity goes down and all men, low and high, rich and poor, go up because they're all together. If you add them all up, lighter than vanity, which is nothing. Praise the Lord. Now how highly do you think of yourself? If you're in the low class, you're obviously nothing. If you're in the upper class, you're a lie. And if we put us all together, we're less than nothing. You know what? I don't think that's very nice. I don't think the Lord was very nice to write something like that because that didn't exactly help my self-esteem this morning. I'm going to leave this service with damaged self-esteem. Brethren, do I get any love? That's the Word of God. And you know what? Our society hates that. I wish Rick, I wish Joel Osteen could smoothly let that verse out tonight. Wouldn't that be great if we could turn on our religious channel and find Joel Osteen down in the Houston Rockets old Coliseum crooning about Psalm 62 and verse 9 to his 30,000? Would he do it? He doesn't know what's there. That's good. And if he did it, there'd only be 300 the next Sunday. Because 29,700 of them wouldn't like to be told what this verse has to say about us. It's not good for the self-esteem preachers. Back to Galatians chapter 6. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. He lies to himself and believes it. We're nothing. The reason verse 3 is there. The reason verse 3 is there because the Lord knows the reason you haven't done verses 1 and 2 as much as you should have is because you're guilty of verse 3. You think too highly of yourself. Why not just be a grunt servant? Praise the Lord for the grunt servants in this church that love and care for one another. We should all be that. Verse 4, But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. Instead of comparing ourselves among ourselves, instead of comparing yourself to others and thereby thinking that you're something special because you found a brother in a fault, as verse 1 told us, why don't you go ahead and prove your own work? Instead of being so good at showing others where they're wrong, make sure you are as good and as proficient 
in showing where you're wrong. And do you know how we prove our own selves? We compare ourselves to the only standards we're to compare ourselves to. The Word of God and the Word of God. Amen. The Word of God, the written Bible. Right. The Word of God, the Son of God. Amen. Those are our two standards. Do you measure up to what the Bible says? Prove your own selves. Quit worrying about others and prove your own selves. I mean, if you're a spiritually minded man and you see a man in a fault, go restore him. But measure yourself by the Bible and then measure yourself by the example of Jesus Christ. Those are our standards. You know, to think to yourself, I'm better than so-and-so, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself if you've ever sinned one time. You're guilty of the whole law and you're on your way to hell without a Savior. If you don't have a Savior. Prove your own selves. Measure yourselves by the Word of God. It's such a mistake to judge and measure yourself by the artificial standards of others. Or of your opinion. Or of what your parents told you that was important. Or of any other organization on earth has no standards of real manliness, real character, real conduct. The only measure that we can measure ourselves by and please God is the Bible itself or the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a standard. If you were worrying about proving yourself by that standard, you wouldn't have time, energy, or the conviction to worry and talk about anyone else. Because you'd be full-time busy. I'd be full-time busy with Galatians 6.4. Let every man prove his own work. You know, when you prove gold, you subject it to a refiner's fire to prove that it is actually gold. To find out what level of impurities are there. Prove yourselves. Prove your own work by the Word of God. Let's measure ourselves by this standard instead of worrying about others. The Apostle Paul said we're foolish if we compare ourselves among ourselves. We need to compare ourselves to the Word of God. Verse 5, For every man shall bear his own burden. Every man shall bear his own burden. If you see a brother in a fault, spiritual members should restore him. But every man is going to bear his own burden. It's going to come down to each of us bearing our own burden, so we ought to make sure that we've proved our own works. We've proved our own selves. And our rejoicing is not rejoicing in our own accomplishments, but our rejoicing in God's grace being used through us. The Apostle Paul rejoiced. He said, I labored more abundantly than they all. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But what did he add right after that? Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's the rejoicing Paul could have. God bestowed His grace upon me, but I labored more abundantly than they all. That made Paul great. And he rejoiced in himself. And he proved himself by comparing himself to Jesus Christ. He's going to tell you before he gets out of this chapter, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had bodily wounds and scars from the persecution that he had endured just like Jesus Christ endured for us. For every man shall bear his own burden. You're all going to be judged according to what you've done. You can't blame your parents. God doesn't care. Because if you're sitting here right now, you're having the Word of God presented to you, and your parents are not affecting you one bit. This is the Word of God. It's being preached to you. Some of you come from terrible families. 
where your parents didn't do much for you spiritually, but it doesn't have a thing to do with what God's going to hold you accountable for. He doesn't care. He knows that He's given you this privilege right now to hear the Word of God, and every man shall bear his own burden. You can't blame your pastor. I can't help it I'm not as eloquent, entertaining, and delightful as you wish I was. All I can do is give you the Word of God. It's your job to hear it, receive it, retain it, and keep it. Because every man shall bear his own burden. I'm thankful for a verse like this. I do worry, pray, care, work, labor, and I'm giving my life for each of you. But there comes a point where I quote this verse to myself. Every one of you can bear your own burdens. Because you don't want to take the Word of God that's preached and put it fully into practice, you'll be held accountable for it before the Lord. Don't blame anyone else. Husband, don't blame your wife because she's not as spiritually minded as you wish she were. Wife, you can't fault your husband and say, he's the one that's caused me to lose my relationship with the Lord. Every man shall bear his own burden. You'll receive in direct proportion to what you are investing in the Lord. Don't lie to yourself. No one else is responsible for you. Every man shall bear his own burden. We do bear one another's burdens as we have opportunity. We do correct and restore those that are fallen into faults. But in the final analysis, every man's going to bear his own burden. We do the best we can to help each other. And part of our burden will be whether we've bore the burdens of others. If you can follow that, and I hope you can. Let's come to verse 6. Galatians 6.6 6. Let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Through verse 5, we have the relationship of church members to each other. In verse 6, we have the relationship of church members to their pastor and teachers. Look at what it says again. Let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. This doesn't mean that you should call your pastor on the phone once a week. Let him that is taught in the Word. That is the group of people that hear the teaching of God's Word in the church of God. Let him that is taught in the Word communicate to him that teacheth. There's an individual that's the teacher in a church, looked at one by one, communicate with that man in all good things. Now, we use the word communicate to mean we talk to each other. We're not communicating right now, and we mean we're not talking right now. But that's not the way the word's used in the New Testament. Let me show you very quickly. Look at Philippians chapter 4. It's only over a few pages. This is how we study the words of the Bible. We, we compare spiritual things with spiritual. I could give you a dictionary definition that would correct our misuse of the word communicate. Let's just use the Bible. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 14. 414. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, how do you communicate with a minister's affliction? You send him a check. Let's keep reading. This is Paul. Verse 15. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. What was Paul's affliction? 
He was in necessity. He had need of things and he didn't have the funds. And so the churches of Macedonia, especially Philippi, had sent funds to help Paul. They had sent a financial gift. And he calls it, you communicated with me concerning giving and receiving. You did the giving, I did the receiving. That's what the word communicate means, as you can tell from this passage. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, it is our goal to learn the Bible. It's my goal to preach it to you. To read the Word of God distinctly and to give the sense. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is charging the rich on how they ought to handle their money. And he says in verse 18 that they do good. 1 Timothy 6.18, it's in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6.18, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. You've got a synonym in this verse for the word communicate. What is it? Distribute. Ready to distribute. A man that's got funds should be ready at a moment's notice to give those funds to serve the Lord and His people. And he should be willing to communicate, which means not to call anybody on the phone, but to give up some of his money. I'm trying to show you from the Bible what words mean. One more, Hebrews 13, 16. I don't want you to be confused about Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. Hebrews 13, 16, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You know, the Lord knows that doing good for someone, if you're really going to do good for someone, it's going to cost you some money. That's, it's that simple. The Lord knows that. We all know it too. You know, some. I'll tell you in the second service when I'm off this microphone about what we did yesterday. And it was a pleasure to, what, to do what we did yesterday. But we communicated in the Bible sense of the word. Right. And it was more than sending an email. Back to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Those that hear the teaching of God's words are to give, distribute, all good things to the one that does the teaching. That's the trade of the New Testament church, the trade-off. When you have a plumbing leak in your house, you hire a plumber. Now, if you're a programmer during the day, you apply yourself at what you're good at, and you get paid by that company that employs you as a programmer. When you, spring a, when you have a plumbing problem at your house, and you're not inclined to solve it yourself, you hire a plumber. And there's a trade that takes place. You do what you're good at, and you trade with the plumber who does what he's good at, and everyone is happy. This verse is teaching that those who are taught the Word of God are to give to the one that does the teaching, and there's the trade. They go and do what they're good at, he does what he's good at, and both benefit and prosper by it. And that's been the rule of God from the beginning. The Levites and the priests took care of the ministry of the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy 12.19 says, Don't you dare forget the Levite as long as you live. Because he's doing the service of God for you. You go have your fields. He's got his obligations. And the two of you can trade. It's spiritual things for carnal things. 
as the Bible puts it in a couple of different places. The words, the verse is worded a little different so that you might not quickly apprehend its meaning. But that's the sense of Galatians 6.16. Let him that is taught in the word, those that hear the preaching, support and compensate the one who does the preaching by giving him all the good things that he needs. And that's Bible communication in a Bible sense of the word. In the Bible, those that are the teachers and those that are the preachers are to live of the gospel. They're to be fully supported by the church to give themselves to their job. Because to study the Word of God in a way that's going to result in truth requires a full-time profession, a full-time application of your abilities, and God requires that. He, he, Paul told Timothy, give thyself partially on the weekend for devotions. Give thyself wholly to reading, exhortation, and doctrine that thy profiting may appear to all. The only way a minister can profit others and that he can show growth in his ministry is to be supported where he can apply himself full-time. You know, many ministers are today are supplied full-time, but they spend their efforts in things other than reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Galatians 6. Let's come to verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Be not deceived. Obviously, on this point, there must be easy deception. God is not mocked. You cannot get away. You cannot get away from God's judgment or evade His judgment or chastening by thinking you can excuse yourself from His commandments. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If we put one kind of seed into the ground, that kind of plant is going to come out. Paul's using that metaphor. What we, what we do with our lives and what we do with our money is going to come back to us. Now, because of verse 6, I understand verse 7, first of all, in a financial sense, second of all, as a general principle of what we do with our whole lives, not just the financial part. Paul is transitioning from verse 6, which is financial, to verses 7 and 8, which cover our whole lives. First of all, financially. If you sow to the Spirit financially, if you sow, and I don't mean like they, boy, those words. You know, if you'll sow your seed, if you'll sow your seed today, you'll all reap a harvest. You know, every man on television is doing that every week. You all know how how seldom this is ever mentioned from this pulpit. They do it every single time they're on television. If you'll sow your seed of $255 a month for the next year, you can reap a harvest. And they go on and on with that language. Right now we're talking about giving to the Lord or giving to yourself. If you don't give to the Lord, what are you doing with your money? You're giving it to yourself. What does it mean to give it to the Lord? First of all, you support the ministry. You support the poor in the church. You support the poor in other churches and ministers in other churches. And then you support those that the Lord puts in your path. When did I, what sermon was it that I preached about this in great detail? What about tsunami relief? You know, when the tsunami struck Indonesia two years ago, 
There was a great outcry made about how much you're going to send to the tsunami victims. There isn't a thing in the Bible about ever doing that. Not a, Jesus never did it. Moses never did it. Never. Not one verse anywhere in the Bible. Your duties are these financially. Family first, church second, other saints in other places third, and then those that God puts directly in your path, like the good Samaritan on his, in his ordinary course of business, runs into a man that God providentially put in a ditch right in front of him. That man we take care of, and that's loving your neighbor. No, no time at all in the Bible, in the Old Testament or the New, did Moses or Paul ever go looking for orphanages. They didn't do that. Now that may seem cold and hard to you, but I want to tell you that God is in charge of the affairs and fortunes of all nations. Amen. They never did it. They raised money. Oh, you can go to the book of Acts and find them raising money over in Greece. But where were they going to send that money? To Jerusalem. For whom? The Bible says it very plainly. For the poor saints in Jerusalem. When there was a famine, did they send it to the United Nations? Or did they send their funds to Jerusalem when there was a famine? Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Talks about a famine being in Judea. And they raised money out of Syria. And Paul took it by his hands and delivered it to the brethren that were in Jerusalem. You know, I've had people come to me for, since, since I was ordained and ask, how obligated am I toward the starving people that are shown on television in other nations of the earth? You're not. You're not. The Lord will take care of them or He won't take care of them. That is not our obligation. And it's not because we're selfish. We're just going to follow the Bible priority. And let me say it again. And if you want a hundred verses to back it up, with every verse in the Bible that deals with taking care of the poor, you can look at the outline on the website, what about tsunami relief? We start with family, then we go to the poor in our own church, then we go to the poor in other churches, and then we go to those that God providentially puts right in our path in our ordinary course of business. When Katrina struck, what did we do? Did we send money to the Red Cross, or did we send money to some Baptist churches that we knew about down there in Louisiana, and Alabama. The latter. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you give to the Lord in that order, generously, He will bless you. If you keep the money for yourself, He will starve you out. It's your choice. One verse. Proverbs chapter 11. We've been there many times before. But I want you to think about it. I want you to rejoice in God's Word. There are secrets in God's Word. You know, I've watched all those money grubbers on television, and I've never heard them use this verse. And we don't want them to hear it. They don't know their Bibles well enough to know that it's here, because if they ever fell on it, they'd be using it every week, every day. Proverbs 11.24 Look at this. These are wonderful verses. There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth. And there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. My mind says this. If I want to get ahead, then I need to conserve and not give so much away. That's what, it's, that's what they teach at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. 
That's what they teach at the Stanford School of Business. That's what they teach at Harvard. In order to increase, you've got to preserve and reserve capital. You can't give it away. The law of God is totally contrary. There is that scattereth and it tendeth to increase. If you take your funds and throw it away, family, church, other poor saints, and those poor that God puts in your path, God will make you increase. He operates above the laws of math and quantitative economics that are taught in schools of business. He operates above it by divine power. He is able to patch up the holes in your bags. He is able to make your shoes last for 40 years like He did Israel. He is able to bless. They are wrong. This is a secret of God's Word. Men pay $1,000 an hour for a good financial planner with a CFA, a CPA, and an MBA from one of those schools. But I'm telling you a secret right here. If you scatter and sow to the Lord, you'll reap. Look at the next verse. Well, the second half of that verse. There is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Now, wait a minute. If I'm holding back my money and keeping it right here, that's how I'm going to get ahead, right? Wrong. If I hold back, it's going to tend to poverty because the Lord's going to blow against everything I do. Verse 25, the liberal soul shall be made fat. You mean, Lord, the more generous I am, the fatter I'll get? You got it. That's the law of the Bible. It's not taught in a business school anywhere. And he that watereth shall be watered also himself. See, there's where it comes from. That's how a man that gives away can be made fat because the Lord waters from heaven. Verse 26, He that withholdeth corn, the people shall curse him, but blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. Let's say you're the biggest corn farmer in the whole nation. There's two things you can do. You can corner the market. To corner the market means you're the only one that's got it and everyone's got to come begging at your door and you'll sell it to the highest bidder. God God and men will curse such a man. He'll never get ahead. But if that farmer just sells his corn at what the poor can afford and what the market would generally say is the price of corn without any influence by him having the largest farm, God and men will bless that man. Should that have taken place in a few oil companies in the last 18 months? Back to Galatians chapter 6. They don't think like we do. Let's make sure that we never think like they do. Brethren, you all know, you know, I hate to have visitors today. How, How often do I preach on this subject? We encounter this subject today. Once in five years, huh? You know, Rob's going to go home. Brother Rob's going to go home and think that it's no different than Benny Hinn and the rest of them that are going to pass the, pass the Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets and expect them to be full of money before they hit the, the deacons at the back. That's not what we do here. To make sure that you understand that, don't add one cent to what you put in the ox box over here. Put every cent you want to right in that church general fund that I'll never see. I couldn't care less. I made that decision 20-some years ago, and it's still the same today. I couldn't care less, but I do commend all the faithful ones in here who practice verses 6 and 7. And may God continue to water you. Because I watch Him water you. And I rejoice in it. 
as it happens. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Starting with financial, if you sow financially to the Lord, the Lord will bless you. If you sow to yourself and keep the money to yourself, you're going to take yourself down. Verse 8 says this, He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Paul's going to extend this argument all the way out to the difference between heaven and hell. If you sow to the Lord, if you sow to the Spirit, if you do the things that God asks you to do with your money, your time, your effort, your lives, if you do that, you're going to reap everlasting life. That's how far he takes it. Look at the rest of that verse. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. What are you sowing today? Are you living for the Lord with your whole heart? If you're sowing spiritual good works, truly caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving Christ, seeking His worship, assembling with His saints, if you're doing those things, you're going to reap life everlasting. Someone can say to me, do you mean to tell me that financial giving is connected with eternal life? It is as an evidence. If we go back to the verse that I read to you from 1 Timothy 6, where the rich are to be ready to distribute and willing to communicate, do you know what it says? By doing that, they can lay up, lay hold of eternal life and lay up a good foundation against the time to come. That is the evidence of eternal life, is loving others, and the true love of others is burden-bearing and money-giving. Because it needs to cost you something, or it's not burden-bearing. It needs to cost you something, or it's not real love. Love serves and gives. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it will result in eternal life. Verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Don't get weary in doing what is right. Don't get weary, weary in following the course of the Bible. Because there is a time coming which you will reap. You're putting seed into the ground, and it's going to come forth either the resurrection of damnation or the resurrection of life. It's coming. If it doesn't even happen in this life, and usually it happens in this life as well, if it doesn't happen in this life, it's going to happen at the end of this life. You will reap. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. God calls on His saints to be good, kind, benevolent, charitable, whether it's a wounded Jew in a ditch like the Good Samaritan took care of, or it's on the job that you serve your masters well, above and beyond the call of duty that they expect from other employees. Do good to all men, but especially to them that are of the household of faith. See, right there's the discrimination that God teaches in the Bible, that we make a difference between the world and the household of faith. Whenever we have a choice of who we can serve, we serve the household of faith and give them the, our best efforts, our best financial giving we, we do toward the household of faith which includes saints in our church, saints in other churches. Paul concludes this section by saying, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. If you go to Romans 16, if you go to 1 Corinthians 16, you'll find out that Paul didn't write his own epistles. He had secretaries that wrote them for him, and when he would get to the end, he would sign his name and say, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And he tells us that. He tells us that in Romans 16, where Tertius, wrote the epistle to the Romans, and I, Paul, signed it, and he says that in 1 Corinthians. But here he said, I have written this whole epistle with my own hand. Look at this large letter that I've written with my own hand. And what he does by that is give a personal appeal to these Galatians to consider 
what he's get, what the advice, the warnings, the rebuke that he had given them. And may we take it as a personal message from the Apostle Paul to us, sent by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. These are the things important for us. Verses 1 through 5, how we love and care for one another by bearing each other's burdens. Verses 6, that we support preachers of the gospel wherever we can find them. Verses 7 and 8, how do we live our lives? Are we sowing to the Spirit or are we sowing to the flesh? Verse 9, oh, don't get tired. Don't quit. Don't get discouraged. We will reap. God will make sure that we reap the harvest of eternal life if we have sown to the Spirit. And as we have opportunity, whenever you consider someone and see a possibility of doing something for them, let's do it. Let's do good unto all men, especially those that are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. This is why we have a church, to do these things toward one another, toward all men, and toward the household of faith that God shows us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and our obedience to it.